Thanks for downloading this special episode of Unearthed from the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. I'm James Wong. In 2020, we remotely recorded our series about the mysterious role of plants and fungi in our wider world. Meanwhile, on the global stage, we saw some hugely important events unfold. Whilst the global coronavirus pandemic caused us to rethink many of the rules of modern life, worldwide protests raged in response to the killing of African-American man George Floyd in US police custody. This international coming together of voices against racism and brutality at a time when so much of the fabric of society was in turmoil presented an opportunity for conversations that had just not been had before. The Royal Botanic Gardens Q reflected upon their role as plant scientists and custodians of world-leading collections of important plants and fungi, but also on their responsibilities as a public institution. And as with many British institutions with roots in colonialism, these reflections included an examination of their own legacy and history, and of the people and cultures that have made Q the institution it is today. Some acknowledged, some exploited. That's why in this episode, we wanted to open some of those conversations to you, to the people who enjoy visiting the gardens, to those who benefit from Q's work, to plant scientists and horticulturists, and to the young people who may play a role in the critical science of our future. I'll be joined by three panelists today, each bringing a unique perspective to the issue of diversity and inclusion in the way that we present our history and how we do our work. I'll also talk to Taishan Hayden-Smith, the founder of Grow to Know, to find out how his community gardening initiative is creating new spaces for learning and connection. The reason why young people and more diverse communities feel so isolated from gardening at the moment and horticulture is because it's in a kind of a wrapped up bubble that there's no one being able to come in and there's no one really looking out with. And Sophie Richards, one of Q's talented botanists, will be challenging director Richard Deverell in an open discussion about how Q is meeting these issues now and in the future. We do have far too few senior role models from minority backgrounds, particularly in science and horticulture. So there is a lot more we need to do. But first, let me welcome my guests to the first of our discussions. Anvili Richmond, a garden, landscapes and social historian and gardener's world presenter. Richard Choksi, a graduate of Kew's Diploma in Botanical Horticulture, who's studying a master's in global history and working as a landscape gardener. And Renee Cawthorn, manager of First Nations Education and Engagement, Science, Education and Conservation at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Adverly, I'm going to start by asking you how the tensions we face today have emerged over time. Basically, from the sort of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, the wealthier members of society collected plants and other rare specimens. You know, they had their cabinets of curiosities, etc. And they were a status symbol. A great deal of money and networking went into their acquisition. And basically, gardens and pleasure grounds were created to showcase these plants. And so the plant hunting and distribution 
were a major part of the development of these gardens. And these wealthy collectors were the initially the people that benefited the plant hunters' exploits, whatever survived coming back. They were selling them to the highest bidder and increasing this demand. And so over the years, these stories have been sort of told from a different perspective, for want of a better expression. And I think these tensions are now emerging because there is a lot more information out there. It's now easily accessible to a lot of people. And I think you find that later on, as this wealth began to filter down to the middle classes on the back of the sort of industrial revolution, commerce and industry, you know, brought a lot of money to these middle classes. And gardening and knowledge of horticulture, botany and other sciences became a means of entering society because the Victorians were dreadful snobs and they were obsessed with status, especially if your money had actually come from trade or industry. And these people, they found sort of botanising, horticulture, gardening and whatever science they could get their hands on, they found that this actually legitimised their newfound status. And it's from these old hobby collections that most of the original botanic gardens are set up as, even including Kew. Today it's a scientific institution, but many botanic gardens, including some of the the world's most prestigious ones, were basically stamp collections for posh people, just living stamp collections. Absolutely. And Richard, tell me about your background. I'm uh, a recent graduate of the Q Diploma, which is Q's degree level qualification in botanical horticulture. Currently taking a master's in global history, looking at the history of the natural sciences and botanic gardens in particular, with the intention of ultimately getting into a curatorial capacity in botanic gardens, looking at that history and, and discussing it in a kind of inclusive way. Currently working as a landscape gardener, leading a maintenance team in, in London. Um, I'm going to now ask Renee if she could um, tell me a little bit about her background. Um, my name's Renee Cawthon, and I'm a Wiradjuri woman, an Aboriginal woman from Aubrey in New South Wales. I've worked in cultural institutions and um, cultural education for the last five or six years. Well, I'm so excited to have all of you on the panel today. Talk about a, a superstar lineup of people with all kinds of different backgrounds. I thought I might kick off by asking about challenging social and historical biases in botanic gardens and horticulture. And I think one of the fascinating things about bias is that I would say most of them, if not, if not almost all of them, are, are to, at least to some degree completely unconscious, and which makes, makes these matters far more complex than they might seem at the surface. Rene, you've been working at another botanical institution like Kew in Sydney. Tell me about the ethical questions that you face when thinking about how to gather, share and present knowledge today. Yeah, so much of First Nations people's knowledge in Australia has been lost or has even been romanticised or reappropriated. Before colonisation, there were over 350 Aboriginal countries and each of these countries had their own language groups, their own cultural practices, so their own art, laws, songs, dances. 
So when you think about the diversity of not just the environment, but the Aboriginal cultural practices, it's very difficult when we're coming to these ethical areas where Aboriginal cultural knowledges have to be respected and acknowledged. And it's very hard because of the difficult history that Australia has in its colonial past and the way that First Nations peoples have been represented. Do you find it's even more tricky because when you're talking about knowledge, you sort of have to identify who the owner of this knowledge is? So when we want to attribute, you know, dual place naming and that kind of thing, it becomes very difficult because you have to work with different communities and then you have to understand the different protocols and laws associated with working with those groups of peoples. And that will be different in each area or each group that you work with. One of the things that I'm always surprised about as a horticulturist is to wander around a botanic garden, the number of species that were introduced and presumably with none of the cultural uses intact. So dahlias were originally domesticated as a root vegetable uh, by people in Central America, and they come over to the UK and people think, oh, pretty flowers, let's breed them for that. Well, most of the time, when certain plants were introduced, I mean, as you say, the dahlia for one, and, you know, the nasturtium and the tomato, you know, they were just curiosities. They were just interesting. Tomatoes then weren't just these gorgeous, smooth, round fruit. They were sort of quite ridged and very, very interesting to look at. And so people had them as curiosities to, to show off. They They didn't understand that you could actually eat them, that the place where they came from, they were a staple of the sort of indigenous native people. Richard, your writing is focused on the understanding of botanic gardens in their cultural context. Why is it important when it comes to encouraging diversity to think about the cultural context of botanic gardens? It's easy to look at a botanic garden nowadays and think this is a scientific institution. That's generally the way they're interpreted. If you look at the history of botanic gardens, they're very much embedded in religious and cultural contexts. So, for instance, the earliest botanic gardens that arose in Europe, so Padua, Oxford Botanic Garden, Montpellier Botanic Garden, most of these, in fact, all of them originally started as medicinal gardens, which was itself associated with spiritual redemption. Medicine in the Middle Ages wasn't purely secular, it was associated with religious undertones. So so priests and monasteries were important repositories of medicinal knowledge. So you've got this real strong link, even at the outset, with the wider cultural context. And then moving forwards into, into what became the imperial age, they took on a new meaning. So they became centres of a global network of plant exchange, which whilst serving to demonstrate the legitimacy of kings and queens like George III, for instance, in the era of banks, they also served a practical need in furnishing the empire with useful and economically profitable plants that could serve the the interests of a metropolitan elite in London. We think of banks as a scientist. I read an article in the Q magazine over the summer which celebrated his contribution to botany, and, and there's no doubt that he contributed a huge amount, but his primary motivation was to further the imperial ambitions of, of his of his nation state, of, 
of his king, George III, and the, the nation that he represented. There's plenty to talk about, and we'll be back soon to discuss the problematic language we can often use around plants, as well as what it's like to start a career in horticulture as someone from a mixed-race background, something that I'm really looking forward to comparing our experiences on. We've talked a lot about our history so far, but today people have a very different relationship with horticulture. For some, it's a weekend hobby in their private back gardens. For others, it's about love, community and expression. But right now, I want to take a moment to share an inspiring story of someone who's passed through the perceived barriers into entering horticulture. Footballer Taishan Hayden-Smith has seized gardening for the benefit of himself and his community. I first met him a couple of months ago when his charity Grow to Know was a seedling. So I wanted to catch up and hear how his ambitions are making a difference to people today. I'm always fascinated about people's different backgrounds and how they got into horticulture because there isn't just one standard route by which they do that. How did you get into horticulture? I think that story changes all the time because on reflection, I, I look back on my life, I'm, I'm rem reminiscing on certain periods of my, my life and thinking, oh, actually, you know, subconsciously, I was really engaged with nature at that age or, you know, that experience must have molded some sort of aspects to who I am now. I do kind of put it down to my mum's influence um, very much so. I don't think horticultural gardening was ever on my, my mind at the time, but I think it was just a, a passion for nature as a therapy and as a holistic way of living. I think my mum being terminally ill for half of my life, obviously, that taught me some really tough lessons, but also some really beautiful ones. And kind of us seeing her struggle and fight through that, but also reverting to a very holistic way of living. So I think in a time of trauma, when I most needed something to kind of keep my mind at peace, it was gardening, horticulture that I turned to. I live just beneath Grenfell Tower. The, the area that I live in, North Kensington, has quite a low social economic background and is full of council estates. Um, and I live in one of those estates. And after Grenfell Tower, community members didn't really know how to, to respond to that. And, and you wouldn't. You, you don't know how to, to respond to people losing their friends, their family, their children. And it just so happened that it was gardening that was my therapy. And, and that's how I first got my hands in, in well, I'd say first got my hands consciously in some soil. It, I guess it was guerrilla gardening, even though I didn't know what that was at the time. I thought like guerrilla gardening was something to do with the, the actual gorilla, like the animal. <laughs> Someone saying, oh, you're a gorilla gardener. And I, thought, I took offense. So I, I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, then I soon came to learn what guerrilla gardening was. Is this something that your mates are doing, your contemporaries are doing? Because... I'm finding it difficult to understand the nuts and bolts. When you say guerrilla gardening, did you just find a bed somewhere in North Kensington? Because there aren't that many even open public spaces in which to do that in our neighbourhood. Not at all. Um, yeah, so there's really not that much space. And, and I think in the moment, there was no really, there's not really much thought process behind it. It was, there was some people doing art on the walls and just across the road. So that was a, a raised bed that was uh, like a brick raised bed. And um, it was council land and uh, technically speaking, I probably did something illegal in what I did, but uh, I think at the time it was very much justified. But I just went into this barren, neglected, derelict space. I wouldn't call it a green space because all the plants were struggling and, you know, it wasn't flourishing, so to speak. You know, there were knives in there, there were needles in there, there was all sorts of weird stuff that you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want to pick up. But we cleared out that space. 
we've transformed it into something that and the community could be proud of and could smile at when they walk past. And from that one bed, you've moved on. You carried on with that. It wasn't just one one patch of land that you were sort of protecting on your own because gardening can be quite territorial. This is a group of different people all working together and it spread from there. Yeah, and, and what was really nice about this project was that it wasn't a consistent group of one set of people that were very kind of, it, it was never our garden. That was the, that was the tone that was set from the very get-go. It, there was no ownership to it. It was a community garden that anyone could come into and get involved in. And, and like you said, there, you'd find people from all different ages, all different backgrounds coming together to unify in this one space. And that naturally is a catalyst for conversation and, and breaking down barriers and communicating through your feelings and your emotions. And I think that's what I really benefited from personally. But I could see that outwardly as well. I could see that, you know, so there were so many benefits to what we were doing. And then we started doing other spaces in the area that were, were otherwise unused or uh, derelict or kind of unloved. Um, so we, we just uh, injected some love in the, in the community through green spaces. I think what you're doing is really interesting because gardening can often come with a certain culture attached to it. And I think part of that, there are like there are gatekeepers in horticulture that can say who is and who isn't allowed into horticulture and even what is and what isn't horticulture. But you seem to be doing things in a totally different way, just being trying to be as open as possible to the greatest number of people. When it comes to gardening, there doesn't need to be some sort of set way of doing things. And I think that's what isolates a lot of young people from gardening because there's almost this kind of exclusive gardening club at the moment that you know if you don't do it this way then you're wrong um, and i think what we need to normalize is that there isn't a right and wrong it's like you, right. can, you can you can learn through your experience you can learn through your mistakes you can learn through actually getting involved and, and just you know i think for a lot of young people especially in north kensington in my community there's no first access point for gardening there's no first step to take and i think you know it doesn't have to be zero to 100 it can be growing something on your windowsill whether it's in a community garden, whether it's on Chelsea Flower Show, you know, there's so so much scope to gardening. I think what we need to realise is that gardening can save lives and it's not a matter of a luxury. Um, and I think that's what we need to normalise in, in communities, especially like the one that I'm from. Why do you think it's important to encourage a diverse range of people into horticulture? Because there is a sort of a stereotype of the, the, the kind of person that can be allowed. And I, well, me personally, I can find that quite intimidating. I live in North Kensington, as you know, and, you know, as a neighbour. Chelsea Flower Show is just down the road. Um, and there's a reason, there's no coincidence that no one from my community or no one that I know has ever been to the Chelsea Flower Show. Sure. Um, and, and I think it now is the time for that conversation and that change. Naturally speaking, you know, if, if a bottle of water is going to cost someone £6 to go there, you're, that's, exclu- you know, that's very excluding of a certain community or a certain social, social economic background. Because, you know, who's going to go there to pay £6 for a bottle of water if you're trying to survive? Sure, sure. That's my whole point. I think the, the reason why young people and more diverse communities feel so isolated from gardening at the moment and horticulture is because it's been in some, you know, in a, in a kind of a wrapped up bubble that there's no one being able to come in and there's no one really looking outward. And only now is that conversation and that kind of exchange starting to happen. And so... And actually, I'm really hopeful of potentially being a part of the Chelsea Flower Show this year, but slightly doing it a bit different sure. to the normal and, and, and kind of putting community at the core of a garden. And I think that's something that I'm really ambitious about. Well, I'll tell you a story. So like, when was it? Just over 10 years ago, I was in a very simple, similar position. So I was walking around Chelsea Flower Show and uh, I said to some of my mates, you know, I'd like to do something like this. And they, they laughed at me <laughs> in a very affectionate way. 
Um, but they said, the thing is, James, to be at the show, you actually have to be someone. You can't just come on off the street. And I went, well, how do the people who are someone become someone? They, they're not, they weren't all born someone. There has to be some kind of application form online. And then they, that triggered a big burst of laughter. Went home. There is an application form online and filled it in. Um, and, I, and I've done three of them so far. So, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't let anyone else scupper your plans for world domination. But you've, you've really formalized this as well. You've started a, a, a movement called Grow to Know. Tell me about that. This isn't just your personal mission. You've kind of joined up with a bunch of people and given it a name. My, my experience in that horticulture industry and understanding what horticulture is and understanding what gorilla gardening is and all these aspects to it, I kind of, you know, became immersed in the gardening scene kind of as an outsider and I looked in and I thought well there's no one really like me or, or not too many people like me let me put it that way that that are representing communities like mine and, and they have community at the core and young people and, and more diverse communities and and so I guess I wanted to build a legacy around the work that we had done in the community and uh, so Grow to Know has been set up as a non-profit organization to, to kind of empower inspire and educate young people whilst also creating a more diverse inclusive horticultural industry so that kind of ranges all from community projects and community ideas as well as the career aspects of of gardening and diversifying the horticultural industry in that way it's been some journey in the last nine months and and uh, it's funny how i launched in the midst of covid19 and black lives matter and I think that there wasn't really a better time to be engaging with the horticulture industry leaders because now they're, they're ready to listen. Taishan's ambition for redefining what horticulture can be and who it's for is something that I can really relate to. Earlier on, Richard talked about gardens as sanctuaries. And Taishan's work is making the case for everyone, not just a small elite. We're back with Renee, Richard, and Adverley now, and I wanted to explore a little bit about the type of language we use when talking about plants and plant history. Renee, I'll start with you. What do you think about the word discovered when it's applied to plant science or historical accounts of plant hunters? Sometimes I think it's quite inappropriate because these plants have been known and used by First Nations peoples for tens of thousands of years. And, you know, we have that deep connection to them as well. We have that spiritual and cultural connection to them to care for them and that kinship relationship within Aboriginal or First Nations peoples culture in Australia. And I think it's also problematic because, you know, you think of this, the site where the Royal Botanic Gardens in, is in Sydney, it's often called the first farm. And I would refer to it as the first colonial farm because Aboriginal people had been living and um, using that land and surviving off it for many tens of thousands of years. I certainly feel I see a lot of that in horticulture. Um, I'm always hearing that Britain had led the world in horticulture for centuries. And I think, yeah, sure, if you just don't value anyone, anyone else's horticulture and what you call a garden has to fit a predetermined notion of the, the type of gardening you're already doing in the UK, absolutely. If you don't consider a Japanese moss garden a garden and, and you only uh, self-select for things that you're familiar with, um, there is a bit of a problem with that. Advali, to what extent do you see that? Is that just that me having a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that? No, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. Gardens are so diverse all over the world. And it's all to do with 
the climate and, you know, what you've got to play with. It's like expats in various countries trying to recreate an English garden with lawns, with these gorgeous green lawns. Yeah, you can do it, but it takes an awful, awful lot of hard work a lot of labour, a lot of water to keep it green. Whereas if you didn't attempt to do that, it would be a different type of garden. But uh, what what I was actually going to say on the back of this discovered malarkey is, is that it's actually still going on now. These so-called discoveries, as far as sort of traditional medicines are concerned around the world, you sort of read about private and commercial attention with with the intention of patenting some of these cultural products for pharmaceutical application. And what's happening now behind the scenes is exactly the same thing that was happening in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, where obscene amounts of money are being made with very little or no compensation or even acknowledgement to the native and local communities of these countries. And I think that is a real, real issue. Well, I just wanted to jump back in on on the myth of the English garden and its uniqueness. I think it's worth bearing in mind that we owe a lot in terms of our our garden design to cultures that aren't English. The Italian garden, for instance, was a massive influence on British English gardening. And then if if you look at the design of early modern botanic gardens, which are often square-shaped walled gardens with two bisecting axes converging on a central water feature, what that archetypal design recalls is is the paradise garden you look at an, an, an islamic paradise garden and it's virtually the same what that recalls is is a desire to create a safe sanctuary that excludes the difficult and chaotic exterior because historically people have been threatened by nature and felt the need to create sanctuaries I just wanted to talk about when the English first came to Australia and the what they saw in the actual landscape and the management that Aboriginal people had maintained and how the landscape was actually clear. But then they still tried to create the landscape that was back in England. And, and that completely decimated and destroyed some of our native plants and native species. I, I grew up with, in Singapore. And the botanic gardens in Singapore was laid out by British colonialists. And it's beautiful, um, it, but it is rolling hills of lawn. And at the time, I uh, had, you know, everything that you would expect to see in a proper garden, which basically meant Western garden. So you'd have the sundial, uh, you'd have the rose garden in the tropics where roses don't flower <laughs> and have horrible fungal diseases, but you had to have a rose garden for it to be considered a real garden. And I definitely was struggling against nature. I was getting my grandma to mail me hyacinth bulbs because native plants couldn't be real plants. To have a proper garden, it needed to to fit a predetermined image of what I had in my mind. I mean, certainly in Singapore, that has been revolutionized uh, in recent years. Why do you think, Richard, that we're beginning to start to have these conversations today? Because certainly when I was at university, it wasn't happening. I don't know about the global change. It does feel like there's been an enormous change in the last year. I think everybody's been shocked at the murder of George Floyd and the increased 
attention that's been given to the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think that it, it does, that does speak to a longer process of talking about issues of diversity and racism, the legacy of colonialism in our cultural landscape that has been growing. And I think botanic gardens have been lagging behind somewhat compared to museums where there seems to be a much greater desire or willingness to deal with these issues. Well, certainly, I think these conversations are being had now because, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement has been around since 2013. But obviously, in history, there are always events that sort of bring certain issues to the fore. But I think also, because people are travelling and resettling themselves all over the world, when they start to integrate, to try and integrate into these some of these societies, I think they're they're finding that there is deep inequality and lack of diversity and representation in certain sections of society. People can see and hear this for themselves and they're not being fed this through, I don't know, a curriculum or whatever. They're now in a position where they can find out information for themselves. And and a lot of it is reliable information. Social media is a weird space. You know, it's either really horrible or it's extremely useful. And I think the, these, these conversations, now that they've started, I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. I think they're very timely because the death of George Floyd in America... Um, really highlighted the systemic racism that still exists in society today and the issue with police brutality and deaths in custody in Australia. So in Australia, we have a huge problem with the number of Aboriginal and First Nations peoples in incarceration. And since the 1991 inquiry into Aboriginal deaths in custody, more than 400 Aboriginal people have died. Um, whilst in police custody since. And Aboriginal people in Australia have continually fought for their rights, freedom, recognition and custodianship of their country. People are coming together with a voice, but we're not seeing that real action taken by the people who are in positions of power. It's something that I I often come across when I talk about uh, these issues in the space of gardens. And people say, surely gardens should be the one space that we can avoid politics. Stick to plants. Stop talking about politics. (laughs) What do you guys think about that? I notice, Advali, you have your hand up. Oh, gosh. Oh, where do I start? I'm a garden historian and I am often found lurking in historic gardens And sometimes, I'm going to put this out there, sometimes I am the only black face in many, many situations to do with gardens and gardening. And I have been followed around a particular properties shop Sometimes it's really, really difficult to feel comfortable in gardens 
in that those kinds of spaces. And this is me speaking as a qualified garden historian who teaches garden history in this country. I often feel very out of place in gardening environments, particularly high status ones. So, you know, something like Chelsea Flower Show, I can I can feel it. And I it's not because I feel it walking in. I'm definitely made to feel it. Like people will remind you in in subtle ways and sometimes quite overt ways that you don't belong. Um, so what given that there's this existing barrier, if you're coming to it as a newbie, what makes you dedicate your life to studying gardens? I was interested in plants and I sort of studied heritage horticulture and I did all this. And then it was just a natural progression that these, some of these plants, these, the history of plants is so interlinked with the British Empire. The plant hunters, the big houses, the people that collected them, it's all tied up. And I just found myself doing a master's in garden history. And this, and it wasn't until later on when I actually started going to these places independently that I suddenly looked around and thought, oh, OK, it's just me then. I grew up as a mixed race kid in Singapore. My mum's from Wales. So I was always the white kid at school. And most of my immediate family that I spent a lot of time with are white. So I was 100% convinced. <laughs> and then when I moved to the UK, I was like, why do you, what was that? But is there a Chinese person here? <laughs> I would almost like, look behind me as if they were talking about someone else. And I think that's, there's an unusual perspective as if you're coming from a mixed race background. And that's that, you know, when people talk about having a privilege or an impediment, it's very difficult to know, I think, sometimes what's the cause of that, whether that's just someone who has treated you in a certain way because that's who they are, or because it was, you know, race played a factor in that. But being a mixed race person, I, I can tell you that if I get off a plane, I can instantly gain or lose privilege. <laughs> when I step off a plane in the UK, or if I step off one in Singapore, I was always the, the minority white kid in Singapore, but I was always treated better as a result. When I started doing horticulture, I didn't have any idea that I was unwelcome and still people started making it obvious. So I think the danger is that if you try and exclude politics from, from gardens, then you allow the latent politics that definitely exists to perpetuate unchallenged. So, I mean, a place like Kew is a deeply political landscape. If you don't challenge those ideas, which are baked into the meaning of the space and are implicit all over the landscape, then, then you allow them to, to carry on affecting people. Absolutely. The, the idea that you, you need to keep politics out of horticulture or out of botanic gardens is a political, is a deeply political statement. Because what you're doing is saying, we, we like the status quo, and there's no inherent bias here whatsoever. Whereas, you know, humans are incapable of operating without some form of bias. Gardens are also a form of art. And would you ever say, keep politics out of music or sculpture or painting? That They are informed by, and they inform politics and culture. That there's, It's impossible to separate the two. I'm very privileged in that I'm an Aboriginal woman, but I have very fair skin. And I walk in both worlds, you know, I am have my Aboriginal heritage, but then I also have German and English heritage on the other side of my family. And what I'm really fortunate is that I have an education and I have a Bachelor of Science. And that's given me the knowledge and the skills to be able to validate our First Nations scientific knowledge, you know, to be able to talk in the language 
and use the terms that are understood by the Western world. But also, you know, I've found that it's also given me an opportunity to explain these concepts through both a cultural and a Western lens. What does decolonization mean and why are we talking about it in, in, in these institutions today? To me, decolonization means acknowledging, recognizing and valuing First Nations people's knowledges and perspectives, but also giving them a voice, you know, within that space to be able to speak and advocate on issues that concern them. And within Australia, when you think about our connection to country, and the way that we care for and maintain the environment, I think that's very important when you consider the Royal Botanic Gardens and the space that, you know, we're talking about. You were mentioning uh, grass trees earlier, and they're a plant that I know from horticultural textbooks from not that long ago, post-2000, by their other common name, which is black boys, because they have often a charred black trunk. Yeah, so that wasn't actually why they were called black boys. And okay. Actually, yeah, it was a derogatory term that was used towards Aboriginal people because the stalk that comes, the flower stalk that grows from that tree, is often used as a shaft for making spears. And the oh. men often stand right next to their spears. So when you think about the word boy as well, it was giving, you know, it wasn't giving Aboriginal men the status that they deserved. And this isn't just in common names. This is also kind of generally in scientific language. Um, what do you do? You have any views on that, Richard? Yeah, due to the fact that a lot of plant names were given during a period of European imperialism, you find that that period of time is memorialised in botanical nomenclature, and sometimes that can be problematic. It raises the question: Can we allow that legacy to? perpetuate indefinitely, unchallenged. Here at the Royal Botanic Gardens, we're actually working with local elders and custodians, knowledge holders of plants, and they're providing us with information about the um, First Nations languages and the words for these plants. So we're trying to incorporate that dual perspective and understanding so that we can create a shared and sustainable future for everyone. And I think that's the way forward and a better way of, you know, being more inclusive, but also acknowledging First Nations people's knowledges and contributions. If we look honestly at the legacy of, of colonialism in botanic gardens, then we can start to identify the ways in which botanic gardens still participate in a problematic colonial mindset. So even today, I, I think things are changing, but there is a tendency to view Indigenous peoples as in some way deficient and in need of guidance in terms of how they should relate to their natural environment. And if we recognise that that is to some extent a product of, of an inherited cultural bias towards Indigenous or against Indigenous knowledge, then we can change that mindset to treating people as assets and saying that these people are the most qualified to engage with their landscape in a sustainable way because they have lived in it for, for in some cases, you know, up to 40,000 years in the case of Indigenous Australian groups. And treating those people as allies and facilitating their fantastic work rather than treating them as, as deficient. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back with the final part of our discussion in a moment. 
Next, though, we couldn't talk about this topic without putting Q's work on decolonization and inclusion under the lens. Sophie Richards is a Q botanist working on tropical important plant areas. She spoke out to colleagues recently in a blog post about being a person of color in botany and her early impression of visiting Q as a child when she noticed she was one of the only non-white visitors in her group. We asked Sophie if she would discuss Q's responsibilities and plans with director Richard Devereaux. I'm Richard Devereux. I'm the director of the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. I'm Sophie. I am a botanist at Q and I work on tropical important plant areas. I am mixed race. My dad's black from the Caribbean and uh, my mum's white from Lancashire in England. Sophie, so I know you've been at Q a little while. Can you tell me a bit about your route to becoming the botanist? When I was deciding what to do at university, I was very much steered by the fact that I didn't want to be unemployed. The financial crash happened when I was at secondary school and I'd seen unemployment up close and I knew it wasn't good. So I was really, really keen to get a job that I could get a career from. And I thought, you know, STEM jobs, you can usually get a, a good job after the degree. So um, that's why I chose biology. I didn't really think about plants initially, but they sort of came as an interest as I started doing the degree. But at the same time as I was doing my degree, I sort of lost an interest in biology overall and pursuing an academic kind of career. Basically what happened is I went to university and didn't have the same experience that other people had had. So for example people took gap years and went to like the rainforest in Borneo. They had done internships, they had specialist interests from a young age in like birds or entomology or something like that, which I just didn't have. I worked hard at my A-levels and that's what I thought I needed to do to do well and it turns out there was a whole other range of experience that people had that I just didn't and so I felt kind of stupid and that I wasn't suited to biology and that I couldn't compete with these people career-wise and so I was definitely put off. Those experiences are sort of common for maybe a working class person. I'm from a working class background and so I'm sure white people from a working class background also have those experiences but at the same time I was the only person from a black background in my lecture theatre. I had no black lecturers, there were no black researchers. I struggled with my mental health as a result of it and something that was really great was I had one lecturer who was a botanist and he was the loveliest person and he taught me so much and he was always like he was almost like a pastoral support at the same time as being my lecturer and that was great and so botany was always easier to learn because of that and at the same time I always loved engaging with nature as a way to sort of help relieve the the symptoms of my mental health issues that I was experiencing and so Connecting with nature was always like a positive thing for me, as uh, particularly plants, like going to the botanic garden in my university city was always like a great experience. I learned about the masters at Kew and I thought it's just a year. If I hate it, I can just leave and at least I've done it. At least I know what it's like. I really enjoyed it. And, and then a few months after graduating from my masters at Kew, I was able to get a job here and now you can't get rid of me. So That's amazing. There are so many interesting themes there. So it was the intervention, it was the support and encouragement from one individual that really helped you at your university. Yeah. So, so naturally, I'm curious about your experience at Q, the one-year master's. As you said, if it was truly terrible, it's only a year. What, what was your experience of, of researching, working as a student at Q, and how did it differ from university? I mean, clearly postgraduate is different to undergraduate, but nonetheless... Tell me, did you feel welcome? Did you did you find a, a different sort of spirit at, when you were working in a botanical garden? 
it felt like a lot of the the staff who were lecturing us were really really keen to get us into those career paths but this issue about having role models i think is absolutely central we have too few role models particularly at senior levels in science and horticulture perhaps particularly of people from minority ethnic backgrounds but on also to an extent women actually we recognize there is a huge amount more to do and the power of role models particularly if those individuals are supportive to individuals to other individuals provide mentoring or informal support i think it can be transformational i mean my background is completely different to yours but i had quite a turbulent time at school and there was one inspiring teacher who was my biology teacher so i'm interested you, you now work at q and you can see we're wrestling with these difficult issues of our history a colonial and imperial history of course what's your sense of how well we're doing there or the changes you would like to see I think the history is very sanitized. It's the sort of traditional history that you would that I got at school sort of thing and it tells the story of usually white British elite people. There's so much more and I don't think you can fully tell the history if you don't mention, you know, the British Empire and slavery. You can't t- tell British history without talking about different ethnic groups other than white people because the the empire was so large it encompassed so many different groups and then the contribution often not given voluntarily of different ethnic groups to the british empire and the building of britain and q as an institution is so important and has to be told and i think q has this amazing opportunity because we can tell the story of uh, the british empire in a way a museum can't we can tell it through living things because we shouldn't forget that plants were the, um, often central to the running of the British Empire with trade and things like sugar, tea, cotton. And we were also, you know, key in the transfer of rubber and um, uh, cinchona, quinine that we get from cinchona. And I think Q should really invest more in that. I agree entirely. I mean, I think Q has got an extraordinary history and we have a really interesting opportunity here to shift the perception of our history and the role of Q in the in the 21st century you know what 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 should we be doing with these historic artifacts what should we do with this historic legacy in the 21st century and how do we use that and so that sense that I want to visit Q I want to there is something there of value of interest of relevance to me how we use those historic stories to provide that relevance that connection I think is a huge opportunity for us and it's a responsibility. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a duty for Q to do this and to do it really well and to do it with the spirit of openness and collaboration, actually. I think we should approach this with a real spirit of humility. Obviously, like you recognise the, the need for, for change in telling like our history and um, addressing diversity within Q. So like, what role do you think institutions like you have in in addressing those issues of diversity inclusion because we need like you know practical solutions to this there is definitely a will there i feel but how do we address these things q is a public body we should be for the public we should be for all members of the public everyone should feel there's things happening at q that are relevant to their lives and of interest and value to them and everyone should be able to afford to visit q so there's an issue about people from um, economically disadvantaged backgrounds as well. So we're starting, our initial focus is on our, on our staff and uh, what more we can do to ensure that everyone at Q feels supported and included and welcome, encouraged to apply, etc. Um, 
but then also looking at the stories we tell to our visitors around our history and our collections. Do you think that we have a sort of difficulty with staff because obviously as I was talking about role models it's important to be able to see people like you but given that Q doesn't actually have many people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds does that not make it more difficult to encourage more people? Do you not have this potential for this um, self-perpetuating cycle of a bias against these groups because they can't see themselves reflected in an organisation? It undoubtedly makes it harder and we do have far too few senior, certainly, role models from minority backgrounds, without doubt, maybe particularly in science and horticulture. So there is a lot more we need to do. I definitely think that talking about it as we are doing now is definitely helps because it it makes people like me when I was younger uh, realise that people do care because quite often there is a, a silence around these issues because talking about racism is quite um, awkward for a lot of people, to be honest. I, I think that's an incredibly important point. I think it's incredibly awkward. And I've had all of these feisty conversations with my children who are late teens and early 20s. And I think one of the interesting things, I'm mid-50s, is that The word racism now has a very different meaning to when I was in my 20s. The word has evolved. And in some ways, I think it's evolved in a very helpful way because I think it makes it easier to have conversations about racism. Because if racism, the definition of the word, includes a failure to act, a failure to acknowledge the problem and to act on it and to acknowledge the privilege that people such as myself have enjoyed, then it makes it much easier to have a conversation about racism. To be silent is to be complicit in a fundamental problem in our society. And I certainly don't want to do that myself, and I don't want Q to do that. So silence is not an option. Definitely. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think at the moment, there aren't many black people considering these kind of careers at all. And like having like a biology degree, there was no other black people in that lecture theatre with me. And so there was no one else in that lecture theatre who could get the jobs at Q, if that makes sense. I think there are many things we can do, some of which we're already doing, but we need to do more and bigger and better. Uh, And I would hope that many more school children would visit Kew. And for those individuals, it would genuinely be a transformative experience. And crucially, I would hope that every school within a reasonable catchment area not only felt there was something relevant at Kew for them and their pupils, but also they could afford to visit. The cost of transport, etc., and the pressures of the curriculum. And we... We, we do quite a lot of work on this with local schools in, in deprived areas. I think we should do more fundraising to support the costs of a, of a school visit. So my hope is that every child within an acceptable catchment area would be able to visit Q, school children this is, want to visit Q or the teachers would want to visit. And that's the beginning, hopefully, of, of sparking that lifelong interest in the natural world. And then another thing that I'm very keen that we push harder on is we do charge entrance for Q, unlike the British Museum or the V&A, etc. And that's a quirk of history going back more than 100 years. But is it possible for us, on the one hand, to earn enough money for those who can afford to pay a ticket to keep us afloat, whilst on the other hand, making sure that ideally no one at all is excluded from accessing Q because of their ability to pay? My simple hope is that everyone, absolutely everyone, regardless of gender, ethnicity, background, uh, region of the country, believes that Q is for them, that it's a welcoming, inclusive place that's doing interesting and relevant things that are relevant to their lives. So Sophie, could I end um, by asking what ideas you have, what you think Q should be doing to engage with wider audiences? 
I think, as you say, children are really important um, because you have to start planning your career so early. Getting people young is, is so important and it's going to be a slow change because you have to wait for people to go through the whole system. But I also think that talking to young people will be so successful because they are so engaged with environmental issues. We saw the the, the school strikes happening um, in, in recent years. They're just such a receptive audience to these things and they really care about these issues that we could make real progress by working with these people. And also social media is you know a great way to connect with people. Working with people, local schools is important, but for me, I'm from Lancashire, I wouldn't have been including that sort of stuff. And so using social media to talk to people who you wouldn't usually talk to, um, Q is usually like marketed as a sort of, um, well to me it comes across as sort of like middle class sort of institution and that talking to people across the country from all different backgrounds in the way that social media allows you to do would be so great and getting our science team, our horticulture team involved and talking about their roles would be amazing I think. Thank you. I hope we can do much of that. I mean, I'd say to you, I'd say to, to, to all staff, you know, ju- judge Q on our actions rather than just our words. And I do hope that you will see actions, the right actions in the right direction in the coming years, building on the work we've already done, but there is a lot more to do. We're back in the studio one last time now. And off the back of Sophie and Richard talking about their roots into botany, I wanted to chat to you all about your experience with finding your careers. My background is in ethnobotany, which is the scientific study of how people use plants. And that really started as the study of botany of other cultures. So half anthropology, half botany. Richard, can I ask how you think history has created social divisions in horticulture and botany as careers? I mean, do, do you think that's the case? I do think that's the case. I think there are a lot, there are several factors involved. I think Economics is certainly one of them. Uh, Historically, horticulture has not been a well-paid profession and and continues to be undervalued in our society. And so that does mean that often you find um, people engaging in horticulture tend to be uh, middle class. And so you find that there's disproportionate representation of people of colour in uh, low-income backgrounds. You've got to think of this uh, holistically as part of a, a broader problem in society where class is still impacting on people's opportunities to to pursue their passions i would say that in my my own personal experience and obviously that is going to be different from other people's that i've never really experienced any form of really overt racism in botany in plant science but in horticulture like it is so endemic and i think that's because the culture of horticulture and botany are quite different when we talk about what good horticulture is, particularly in gardening media that I work in, it seems to be a sunlit idyll set in about 1864 with, you know, people <laughs> using tools that they haven't <laughs> used in 200 years, like scythes and being dressed up like Victorian painters. And that that vision of the world isn't even a historically accurate one. It's a disnified version of the past uh, in which I feel very painted out. I've certainly been told it. Like when when I walk around and I I present at things like Chelsea, um, it can vary from what I think is sort of understandable and unconscious. So people might say, well, you speak wonderful English to to people who will literally say, well, you must only be interested in tropical gardens. In, In that context, how difficult is it for people to enter the industry? Tell me about your experience, Advoli. Um, I was just going to say, I'm sorry, I started giggling at the um, 
the sort of speaking things that I've had in my career, sort of, oh, your English is really good. I think that's um, a knowing giggle. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, oh, thank you very much. But the thing is, historically, land-based jobs like gardening, horticultural, have been seen as labouring. Um, you could tell what class a person was just by looking at their hands. And there, there was a time you know, when gardening was a hobby, could be a hobby, but you never actually got your hands dirty. And also, there aren't many scholars of colour in our sort of higher education, as it were. So the representation isn't there. And so uh, I'm quite a, a Twitter buff. That's the only sort of social media I tend to use, uh, mainly for sort of for work. And I was so happy, I was so gratified to see some hashtags this year. And one of them being hashtag Black Botanist Week. And there was a hashtag black nature, black birders, black, you know, and it was amazing. And these were, there were quite a lot of young people from all over the world, you know, different shades. And they're all sort of saying, well, yeah, hi, I'm here. I saw you pop up on Twitter once and I was like, what? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, her with a head wrap. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, this is not, this is not the stereotype of what, what I'm and I'm used to seeing in a garden historian. Yes, exactly, and th this is why I always get double takes, sometimes third takes. Richard, tell me about your experiences. What I found in the workplace is there are certain networks of patronage that tend to exclude people of colour, women, or other marginalised groups to the benefit of white male individuals. And that's really difficult to deal with on an organisational level because social networks are, are by nature, they're, they're fluid and they're not systematised and you wouldn't want every social interaction in, in a professional environment to be recorded and systematised and, and to be available for interrogation. But then at the same time, there are these informal opportunities for networking and for career, career progression that are very much the access to those opportunities is very limited in terms of uh, race and gender in, in my experience. And the best way forwards is, is usually exposure. You know, it's, it's this idea that um, exposure to more diverse people gives you a greater understanding of their value and a greater tolerance of diversity. I think there's the most productive way is to address it, but without being adversarial, because I think people only learn in the context of feeling safe. Yeah. So being a First Nations person, I often, when I'm educating students, you know, introduce myself as a Rajri woman and talk to them for an hour about culture and share my knowledge. And at the end of it, they'll ask me, oh, are you Aboriginal? You don't look Aboriginal, you know, mm. so there's this preconception idea of you know what a first nations person should look like and what we how we should act and i think that these views need to be broken down a little bit and sometimes it's a bit confronting but i think you know like advali was saying it's a great opportunity to always you know have those discussions 
even though they're difficult? Do you know what? Thinking back to my training, horticultural training, we never, we weren't taught anything about the history of horticulture. From my personal point of view, it's really encouraging to see where we're going. And it's also really encouraging to hear from you guys because I've had very little opportunity to talk to other horticulturists from a BAME background because there are so few of them. I find it really encouraging to to hear that you've experienced things in a slightly different way to my experience. But where do we go from here? Um, how how can things be moved forward? I'm 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 very much interested in botanic gardens in quite a narrow sense. So the, the broader horticultural industry, I, I'm not really prepared to speak to. But in botanic gardens, I think there's a really interesting movement going out beyond the walls of the garden and participating in local communities and community gardening networks and I think that's really encouraging for diversity for the simple reason that community gardening networks tend to be much more diverse than your traditional horticultural demographics and by engaging with those networks botanic gardens are are making these spaces which have traditionally and intentionally been isolated from, from, from the local environment and the local community and opening the door and deconstructing the barriers that exist to participation. And in terms of the, the future for humanity, we need everybody to start taking an active interest in the management, the sustainable management of our environment. I find that um, in horticulture, we're often talking about a lack of diversity when it comes to people who, who work in it professionally. And one of the, the, the first things that comes up when organizations try to address that is that it's not that there are lots of BAME applicants and they're not selecting them. There are just very few people from ethnic minority backgrounds that are even applying in the first place. It's just the type of gardening that you are thrusting upon people, that one-size-fits-all solution is problematic. So I think things like social media are amazing because it shows people the diversity of people from different backgrounds with different ideas from all over the world. You don't have to follow the same Victorian idyll of woven willow and vintage garden tools to be allowed to be a horticulturist. Yeah, I think the I mean I think really my my sort of conclusion on all of this is just representation. If you see somebody who looks like you doing something like that, then it does give you that sense of being able. It it is something that is attainable. Representation, representation. I agree, Adbali. You can't be what you can't see. Exactly. Thank you very much to all my guests for taking the time to talk to me today. And I know this isn't the usual length for a podcast, so thanks to you two for coming on the journey and listening in. It's so important that now and in the future, we give an appropriate time and thought for these issues of representation, historical bias, and bias in career paths. And not just in gardening or plant science, but beyond. I think it's so important that we get to a place where we can have these conversations in an open and and frank way, finding and sharing knowledge about our history and using it to empower equality in the way that we work, live and behave. I hope that hearing some of these experiences and stories has inspired you to take your own part in making change, even if you're working in another sector, and of course, regardless of your background. 
I hope that we can all start having conversations that create positive ideas and actions about how we can build a future that's just fair, transparent, and representative. Plants are for everyone. That's the wonderful thing about them. And so is Q. Q's work is to help solve the critical challenges of the future of life on this planet. And the way we treat one another will always be central to our success. So join in the conversation. Follow at Q Gardens on social media. I'm James Wong. Thanks for listening to Unearthed from the Royal Botanic Gardens Q.